Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Each week on the show, we cover topics relating to building and growing ambitious, yet sane and sustainable startups. We realize that starting a company is hard. More than half of being a startup founder is managing your own psychology, and much of being a founder is making decisions with incomplete information where the right answer is impossible to find through math or data. In this week's episode, I talk with Brian Castle about overcoming a 40% decline in MRR and rising from those ashes. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 474. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Brian Castle, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining me again this week on Startups for the Rest of Us. We have many different show formats. This week is a conversation with someone you've likely heard of, Brian Castle. He hosts the Bootstrapped Web Podcast with Jordan Gall. And I've been listening to that podcast for many years. So hope you enjoy our conversation today. But before we dive into that, I want to let you know about a MicroConf announcement we're making this Friday, December 13th. It is by far the biggest we've made since launching the conference a decade ago. I really encourage you to go to microconf.com. Make sure you're on the email list. If you've you know attended a MicroConf in the past or you have tickets now, you're already on the list and you'll hear about it. Um, but it, it really is big news. And I'm, I'm not just, just saying that to try to sensationalize it or, or encourage you to go over there. But there's there's a lot that's been going on in terms of the planning of MicroConf for 2020, and we have we have a lot of new things coming, and would love for you to be in the loop on on all that's going on. There's a lot that's going to be announced. So microconf.com, make sure you're on the email list. I enjoyed the conversation I had today with Brian Castle. To set a little bit of the stage, Brian is a front-end designer and UX guy by trade, and then he learned to do some front-end development work. And he had been doing a lot of consulting and eventually started dabbling in building products as many of us do. He started a SaaS app called Restaurant Engine, which was originally designed, his vision for it was for it to be Squarespace for restaurants, but really it evolved almost into a productized service where he had to do a lot of handholding with the restaurant managers. And, and, and I think that probably got his gears turning on, you know, it's software plus service and that, you know, offered more value than just straight up building another website builder. And in early 2015, he sold Restaurant Engine for a tidy sum. He talks about that. He said it wasn't life-changing money, but it was enough to you know, go, go towards a new home. And we join his story at that point where he sold Restaurant Engine and he's about to start a new productized service. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian Castle. Brian, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. So, you know, we kind of join your story in the middle, as I like to say, where things are things are going uh, up and to the right. You've launched Audience Ops, productized service, and you launched it April 2015. And over the course of about the next 18 months, it is all up and to the right. And you grow from $0 in MRR from April of 2015 to 50K of MRR by September of 2016. W- what was that? feeling like? Had you ever launched a product that grew that quickly? And and it's productized service, so it's not all software. You know, we get it. But had you ever launched anything that had had that much success for that long? No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, and it was like, I mean, I definitely didn't expect 
to grow that fast. Looking back on it, it sort of makes sense. And obviously what I've learned with productized services is that you can charge a lot more per customer and that helps, you know, accelerate the growth rate. And if you really nail a, a market and you're solving a problem, specific value proposition, all, all that, then then I've, I've found that that growing a recurring productized service like that can can really happen you know, you can grow that revenue pretty fast. I mean, but when I launched it in, in April 2015, I did not set out to even hit that. Like really the goal was like, what's the fastest thing that I can do to get to like 10K MRR? And I mean, it hit that like within two months, so. Right, and like you said, the pr- it's the high price point, right? The average revenue per user, a lot of people don't realize that when you have, when that's $500 a month or $1,000 a month, does not take many customers to get you to that that 10k 20k 30k price point and we you know i i've seen it with microcom companies with with tiny seed companies trying to trying to launch a 20 dollar average revenue per customer app and get to any scale is is a very long road even if you have a big audience or have a lot of traffic whereas the folks who are plugging away adding two customers a month at 500 dollars uh, you know, average revenue per customer, like that's a grand a month of MRR that you're going. It's it's a nice it, it's a nice base to have. Yeah, and I mean, Audience Ops has, for the most part, been between a thousand and two thousand a month in terms of average per customer. And I think it's great to be able to grow a service like that so quickly. It has some downsides to it too, when when you're charging that much because it's the MRR. Like you just see crazy swings in MRR. You can add just a couple of customers, lose just a couple in a week, and you're seeing like swings in 5 or 10K MRR. <laughs> and that can really screw with you. Right. As as well as, and stuff we won't dig into here is like, you've talked a lot about productized services. There are pros and cons to them. You can grow quickly. You know, as we're saying, the price points are high and that's great. Obviously the cons are, hey, it's not as easily scalable as pure software. You do have to hire staff. You know, a 50K MRR SaaS company might have three, four people working on it and a 50K productized service probably has a team of 15, you know, or, or, or more. So there's, there's pros and cons to this, but the, the thing that's cool is you launched it and 18 months later, you know, obviously there was a lot of work that you had to do, but you're, you have this 50K MRR business now that's supporting you because after you exited your prior app restaurant engine, I imagine you didn't want to sit and burn through, <laughs> sit and burn through that cash. Cause you know, you, you mentioned that mentioned to me offline that in 2016, you actually spent most of your restaurant engine money on a, on a new house. Yeah, that's right. When I sold restaurant engine, I mean, it wasn't like, like a life-changing exit or anything, but it was a, it was a chunk of cash. Right. And I looked at that and I, I really thought about what what is going to be my next business to sort of like replace that income. And I wanted to get into SaaS, like software, right right then in 2015. And I looked at a few ideas, but the thought back then of, of basically burning all of that cash within a year and then maybe getting somewhere close to 10K MRR, which is a, a big maybe, is, that kind of scared me. So that's that's what led me to start looking at, well, I kind of know productized services fairly well at this point. Like that seems to be like the fastest way to get to a, a viable recurring revenue source to then free up my time. Obviously, it's a, a lot of work goes into building the team and the systems to remove myself. But that's always sort of been the goal with with the service companies is to grow the cash flow to fund my time to work on stuff. And so you're at 50K MRR with Audience Ops. It's fall, September 2016. And since everything's going up into the right, you're feeling great. You turned 
two, you already had two full-time W-2 people. You turned two more people who were on, they were contractors. You put them on salary. And then you started looking at launching the SaaS app, right? Ops, or starting to build it, I should say, Ops Calendar. And you did some validation there and, and started upping your expenses. What was that? What was the thought process there? Yeah, so right around that time, I guess it was like around September into October, I was I had the idea for for this software called Ops Calendar at the time that was it was like an editorial software calendar with some process stuff built into it like you can automate content processes and things. Essentially that was like the precursor to my product today, Process Kit. But back then that's what I was doing and at, at that point, I was I didn't personally have the ability to just build an app myself. I, I've always been a front-end developer and a designer, not a back-end. So it would definitely require outsourcing and hiring developers to build the functional app. I did some pre-sales. I got, I don't know, 10 or 14, 10, 13, 14 people to, to pre-pay based on the idea and, and a promise that they will someday use this idea. So that combined with the, the growth rate on audience ops, and and I had some profit, you know, saved up at this point. I was like, okay, I'm I'm good with spending. I think it was around five k a month on an outsourced developer, and and that turned into like two or three guys overseas that I was working with. Since we didn't cover it before, could you give people just like a two sentence explanation of of what Ops Calendar, like what it is, and you know the purpose it would serve if it had made it to market, so to speak? The idea with Ops Calendar was to it was essentially a an editorial calendar software with some production process stuff built into it. So you and your team can build a process for how you produce blog articles and podcasts and social media and map all that stuff to a calendar to see who needs to do what by when and also to schedule blog posts and social posts to the calendar. I am, and back then I was running Audience Ops, uh, which is a content service. We do blog content as a service. So obviously it was sort of born out of that. But that was the, essentially the idea with Ops Calendar at, at the time. Yeah, cool. And so what then did the next, I mean, I guess it was like, kind of, there was kind of a six-month chunk where you really from November of 2016, right after you ratchet up these expenses, things kind of hit the skids with audience ops. And I think this is, the, this is one of the tough parts of your journey, it seems like. You want to you walk us through the timeline there, what happened? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're like what three years later now, and and this is still one of those periods of time that I I still look back on like, man, that was painful. <laughs> and what happened was basically that growth from audience ops, you know, zero to fifty k, that started to plateau right around October, November, into the holidays, and then started to decline, you know, through the holidays into January, February, into into about March or April is is when it started to finally turn back around. But it was painful on a number of fronts because it coincided right at the time that I decided to start spending a lot of extra cash on developers and employees all at the same time. You know, and so there was that part of it, and then it was also just like, why is this happening? <laughs> like everything was growing just fine up up until this point. Like what is causing the reduction in leads or the increased churn, probably it was a combination of both. And it's just, I was looking at it in like a thousand different angles to try to uncover what was actually causing it. And it, I mean, it's still unclear to me to this day. I have a few ideas, some hunches of, of what, what it could have been, but when you're in it 
and you're trying to fix it and you just don't know what's what exactly is broken, it's it's really frustrating. Absolutely. And that that's devastating. Dude, 40%. I mean, that's a huge drop. That's fi- like 50K down to 30K. That's that's a lot of salaries. That's probably all your net profit on this thing. You know, I, I've seen SaaS apps plateau. I've seen them right it over the top, so to speak, where they start to decline. But I've never heard of of a of a drop that fast that wasn't due to some big, you know, platform risk, right? Like, hey, I'm integrated with Shopify and they just completely cut off our access, or I'm a Twitter client and they cut the API, or a Google change, you know, something that was just kind of decimating. But to just have that happen seemingly out of the blue, it sounds like, and to really not still three years later not have been able to pinpoint what happened must have been terrible because it and it sounds like it went on for like five months and you were just trying to fix it this whole time is that is that what it was yeah so um i mean there are a few things it was probably a combination of things that i that i look back on i mean one was in the summer leading up to that so summer 2016 it was the first time that i hired a salesperson for audience ops it was somebody on the team they're actually still on the team today and I put that person into a sales role to kind of remove myself from the sales because that was kind of like one of the one remaining jobs that I was still doing in audience ops that the team was handling other stuff. And, and it's not any fault of, of his. He actually did a really great job of closing a lot of accounts that, that summer, bringing on a lot of clients. But a lot of those clients that, that he sold and closed churned like a lot faster than other clients have, have come on. And I think that I, I take that as my fault for the training, maybe some of the compensation structure, but I, I really didn't structure it in such a way to to have a salesperson really set the right expectations for customers. The, basically, the way that I do when I do sales calls for audience ops, it's for, for me, when I do it, it's, it's really about like, let me tell you exactly what's happening in audience ops and almost try to talk you out of signing up for audience ops to, to make sure that you're really on board for this. And, and so, so there's that. We just saw a string of, of cancellations. Then the holiday season hit and that sort of slowed down. It was weird because the previous holiday season was, was actually a, a pretty big spike in, in growth for us, but it didn't happen in 2016. And then in January, so now we're in like the thick of this six-month period where sales are stalling, we're seeing this churn. I go away to uh, the Philippines. My, my wife has some family there. We were there for a whole month. And my plan was to sort of work a little bit while we're there, but it's a completely different time zone. And that means I couldn't, I literally could not do any sales calls. So like even the leads that we had, I couldn't even really talk to them and combine that with like terrible Wi-Fi while I was there. So it was, that was stressful as well. Yeah. And how did that manifest itself? Like what was the peak moment or a moment you can remember where you kind of lost your or you were feeling extremely mad about it? I mean, anyone who knows me, like I'm, I am really pretty level-headed, I think, and I and I tend to com- compartmentalize pretty well. But you know, poor sleep, you know, um, bad eating habits and exercise and and all that definitely starts to starts to pile up because because it's like, well, I could go exercise today or I could keep working and try to fix this thing, and that was sort of the choice every single day. Right, you just dug in and just ground it out, grind, grinded it out, I guess I'll say, and and probably took a toll on your, yeah, it just kind of takes a toll on your body, right? And your mental, I guess your mental well-being too. Yeah. And I mean, into like March, April, 2017 is when things started to turn around. And, and it's almost like, well, I don't really know because it wasn't a sudden turnaround either. Like it took like all of 2017 to sort of dig back out and back up to where it was. 
but we definitely improved a lot of things. Like it, that was when we really improved the new customer onboarding process heavily so that, again, to reinforce those expectations. And, and that, I think, has had a really big impact on customer retention. Like if they have a really fantastic first month with audience ops, they're, they're really likely to stay on for like a year or more at that point. And I worked on some new marketing stuff during that time and some new content, some, some webinar stuff. And I think that seemed to help as well. But Yeah. It's, just, it's something I talked a lot to entrepreneurs, especially new entrepreneurs, don't understand that they'll see someone who's built a business up to 10K a month and, you know, you may be able to sell that for whatever, $250,000 or something, depending on, I mean, there's all these factors, but whatever, you can sell it for a quarter million dollars. But people will say, why would you, why wouldn't you just keep that? You know, just keep it and keep it running on the side. It's only three hours a week or five hours a week and just keep running it. And usually, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, because distraction is distraction and, and there's opportunity cost to that. But the bigger one is that these businesses, none of the businesses we have run on autopilot for years. They always get smacked around by something. And sometimes it's Google and sometimes it's a competitor and sometimes it's platform risk. And sometimes it's something you never would have guessed. It's a key employee quitting. It's something you, that you have a tough time identifying, you know, like what happened with you. And then you have to shut everything down, stop doing what you're focused on, and you have to turn your focus back to this thing that you're kind of tired of working on anyways. And at a certain point, eventually you kind of give in. And, and I mean, I, I, I've done this with multiple businesses and I've seen people do it as well, where you're just like, forget it. I just got to sell this thing. I got to get it off my plate, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it hasn't really come to that point in, in audience ops, but I can definitely say that there have been times and this, this period in 2016 was definitely one of those where it was like, my mindset is trying to get this brand new idea for a SaaS off the ground. It wasn't even in existence yet. It was just like, get this thing to market. That was my number one goal, working with developers. I'm paying for developers. Like, I want that to happen as soon as possible. And, and then I have to stop and work on this churn problem in, in audience ops. Yeah, it was pretty painful. Yeah, you know, and we'll talk in a second about how, you know, essentially how you did turn that around through 2017. But I'm curious, that low point, you know, this five, six months where things, you know, from November to, let's say, March, April, when they're just, it's in the trough and you can't dig it out. You said that's still a point that you remember very vividly. And I, I have moments like that in, in three, four, five months period, periods as well. And I learned, I learned a lot from them and they impact the way that I do things today. They impact the way that I think about business and the way that, you know, I ran my apps after that. I'm curious, like what lesson or lessons did you take away from that that, you know, impact the way that you make decisions? Yeah. You know, I, I found that there are like one or two of the, those points in, in my career so far that, that I can look back on that I, I feel like really influenced the way that I work today. And I, I think some, in some ways that's a good thing. And some, in some ways, like I do things to a fault today to try to prevent that from happening again. So like, I think in, on the, on the positive side, I've been through enough of those ups and downs in the, in the MRR graph to know that like, no matter how well something might be going today, I still have to play it extremely conservative. And, and today, you know, now we're like three years out from that audience ops is actually doing really well. And, and I have uh, like a profit savings saved up that I'm able to deploy on, on new products and process kit and things like that but I'm actually hesitant to spend anything because it's like, just keep the reserves in check just in case you, you really never know. And then, you know, you look at the news with the economy and stuff. So like, I, I look at things like almost like afraid of what, 
what could happen. And then just uh, tactically on on the sales side of it, I, I talked about how that period I had a salesperson, and then and then there was a, a string of of churn that that came in the months after that. That has caused me to really delay and delay on trying to put a salesperson in place again on audience ops. And I'm actually now doing that finally in 2019, the end of 2019, with a new strategy behind it and, and some new structure. But it took me like three more years to finally be like, because I have I have removed myself from every other aspect of audience ops. Like I really spend less than like two hours a week on this business. But those two two hours are doing the sales calls because I just want to make sure that I that that message is being sent to new customers as they as they get on. So I'm finally coming around to like being okay with letting that role go. Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to ask. I mean, obviously, if if you brought a salesperson on and it didn't work out, you had to turn the app around. But after that, I would think that if you do want to get out of sales, that you would just try try again. You know, most salespeople don't work out, right? They they don't work. You don't the first one you find. I mean, frankly, most of the first VAs that I find found and the podcast editors I find, it's like the first one almost never works out. So I just hire one, two, three, four, and it's frustrating and it takes time. But eventually, you find someone and then you're able to let it go. Is that where you're at now, or do you think you're gonna, you know, is that is that something you're you're looking at doing? Is is trying again and stepping away? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying again because I think it it will actually help impact the business, the growth, and just the like the the overall health of the business to get me out of that role. And now, I mean, speaking about it now in 2019, like I just have a lot more space to breathe, like financially and time wise, and and so many more things inside the business are are way more optimized now than they were back then. Like the onboarding stuff is is really locked in and things like that. So I just think it's probably a better time to try to get that off my plate now than it was. I mean, because again, it, it things did start to turn around in 2017, but it took like really all of 17 into like the beginning of 18 before, like 18 was really when I finally got my my bearings back in terms of like having some space to to play with. Right. It, it sounds like it. And, and that April 2017 point could have been celebratory because you were bringing your first paying customers in for your SaaS app ops calendar, but your financial runway was basically gone. So you had to turn it around th- over the next, what, six, seven, eight months. What, what were a couple steps that you took? I mean, it was all hands on deck at that point, right? It's like we've lost 40% of revenue. We're still declining at this point. What were some steps you took to, to turn this around and get out of the tailspin? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Just to, just to be clear, like you touched on it, but there's two parallel products in play here. One is Audience Ops, which was sort of in this like crisis mode, and then Ops Calendar, which like I was, it was trying to get off the ground, but then I would have to like pause paying for the developers right at these critical moments as we were get, bringing these new customers onto the software. Like I just d- didn't have the cash to fund further development and couldn't move fast and all that stuff. So that was really frustrating. But with Audience Ops, to start to turn it around, I did a number of different things to try to attack the problem from different angles. I mean, one was that new customer onboarding again. It was like, I, I worked with my team a bit to to see like, how can we just make sure that customers are really happy after their first month? And, and that clearly has had a, an impact on improving churn over time. So just focusing on retention. That, I think that also helped with customers like referring other leads to us. That has that side effect too. And then I did work on some new marketing materials, like a whole round of new content. I think I did a recorded webinar 
that I put into into like the marketing system at that point. Worked on the email automations that that helped to nurture. People. I just went through like the whole funnel, everything that that leads and customers see as they find out about audience ops, as they go through the sales process, as they get educated and nurtured and onboarded. Like I tried to improve every step of, of that funnel over over that in like early 2017. And I think that, you know, those are the kinds of improvements that you just don't see like moving the needle needle overnight. You just do that work. And then maybe a few months later, things start to improve. Right. And, and it worked, right? Because you turned it around over the next six or eight months. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it has definitely, you know, returned to where it was and, and has grown beyond that, but it doesn't really see the growth rate that it saw in like that very first year. But I, I think that's sort of like, kind of like a natural slowing down that a business sees, or at least that I'll, I'll see it that way. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard to say without, without going out and really beating the bushes and trying to generate a bunch of leads and whatever, doing cold outbound or focusing on SEO or running ads, uh, there's a natural plateau that always sets in. And if you're, it, it seems to me like you've always kind of been cool with that plateau because that, that plateau provides you with a full-time income and budget to, to build other apps, which is really what you want to do. That's your lifestyle choice, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so they were working on Ops Calendar, your de- developers were, and you got your first paying customers in April, and then you had to pull them off to, because you didn't have the money. And then in July 2017, you're able to get them back working on Ops Calendar. And then you do, you get a little bit of traction, right? That latter half of, of 2017, but you never, you never found product market fit with Ops Calendar. And by February of 2018, you were still trying to push it forward, but some calamities happened. It sounds like there was a code base thing. Uh, you want to talk us through what it was like dealing with that? Yeah. So like throughout that year of 2017, it was trying to bring those first customers on and, and we got a few, you know, handful of paying customers. But yeah, over the summer there, my whatever savings I had was gone from that period of, of audience ops. And so I'm not one of these people who just goes crazy on the credit cards. Like once I see a little bit of you know, balance on there. I, I, I'm just too risk averse and, and debt averse to, to really go too heavy on that. So I just pause and I, I don't really spend until I have the cash in the bank account. So I had to pause the, those developers over the summer, which really, really hurt because I felt like it was at a critical time. But yeah, as, as we get into 2018, I went on a trip and we had been pushing off this upgrade from Vue 1 to Vue.js 2 at the time, I mean, I wasn't a developer. I didn't even really understand like what Vue was. The developers just sort of chose that frame, framework. That upgrade broke everything. And so I came home from that trip looking at a situation where it was like I could pay those developers to go fix every single feature that I had just paid them for the last 18 months to build. So essentially spend all that money again and all that time again to rebuild the app, which was not going to happen. And then it was also like, well... We're having sort of a hard time converting these customers. Even a lot of the early prepaid customers didn't end up continuing on as full customers. That said to me, like, you know what, this thing isn't really right. And actually people were using, because we have like a process feature in Ops Calendar and people were using that side of it and they were sort of not touching the social media calendar stuff. And that was also a signal to me that really the product that I deep down wanted to build was more of a process-oriented tool so here I am in, in early 2018, probably going to rethink, quote unquote, pivot the product, if you will, to something else, probably a new name and everything. I'm having the, the problem with these developers. But at that point, I just decided to 
to just stop everything, like like just pause all work on Ops Calendar, take a month and figure out what I'm going to do. And my conclusion was I'm done with being limited by not being able to build apps myself. <laughs> so as a designer and front-end developer and product person, I've, I've always felt, and this really brought it to a head was this experience with Ops Calendar. I've, I've always felt this frustration that like, I can't move fast enough because I'm always waiting for the developers to finish a feature. And sometimes I can't move at all because I don't have the cash to, to pay developers. And so let me bypass that by investing my time in learning backend development. And I learned uh, Ruby on Rails. And I, I basically decided like all of 2018, I'm going to use all my hours, my full-time hours to, to make myself a full-stack developer. I, I know I won't be a very good one, but at least I'll be able to take any idea and build it into a product and bring it to market. And that's essentially what I did. You were just about 18 months into Ops Calendar, and I'm going to guess tens of thousands of dollars paying developers. And you basically, you know, you put it on maintenance mode. I mean, you essentially effectively shut it down. What was that decision like? How hard was that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it was somewhere around thirty or $40,000 that I put into it over that period of time. And I mean, it, it, it sort of sucked, but it was also like, well, I don't really have any other option here. I'm not going to just keep spending on something that's, that's clearly not working. And, and I knew that there were, that the tech underneath the app, like they, yeah, they, they technically built the features that I designed and spec'd, but there were underlying architectural issues that I could, I could just feel as a user. And that was another reason, like moving to like, let me just try to build it myself. Cause at least I could design the thing from the inside out the way that I, I, I feel like it should be built. It was hard, but it was also like, I'm moving on. And at that point, I was also really excited about this idea for, for what the next version is, which became Process Kit, which, which is what, I, what I'm working on today. Right. I'm, I'm curious, you know, deciding to learn to code from scratch, like you'll often hear folks send questions into to this podcast and say, should I learn to code? You know, if I'm going to launch a SaaS app and the answer is always, it depends. It's like, do you think that's something you're interested in? I would at a minimum learn to code well enough to know if the developers are trying to pull one over on you. So you have a concept, you can talk to them about, you know, cause I don't like, I don't write production code anymore myself, but I wrote code professionally for, I don't know, 10 years. Is that right? Yeah. About 10 years or whatever. So I can still have architectural conversations. And when Derek and I were building drip, just, I could go pretty deep on the tech stuff and it's, it's a, it's an asset to have for sure. But I'm curious, instead of learning to code, why not launch another productized service? Cause you seem to be good at them. They seem to work out for you. And, you know, audience ops is obviously successful and profitable. Why continue to, to seek after something that is showing you so much, you know, resistance in essence, which is, which is a, a true software-based SaaS app? Yeah, well, I mean, number one, I've, I've always been interested in software. I'm not new to software today. I've been working on it in different forms for many years. And, and, that, and that has always been my, really my number one interest in terms of what I want to create. On, on the web. I, I've, I've been building on the web for over a decade. And, and so that's really always been where I, I've been heading with this. I mean, even since I started Audience Ops, yeah, I worked very hard on building it and building the team and the processes, the systems and everything. But it's, it's always been with the end goal in mind of removing myself so that I can fund my time to work on software. And like you said, I mean, the, the scalability aspect, like, like, yes, I believe a service company can can run without you and be profitable without you in the day to day like it is for me, but it's not, it's clearly not as scalable as a SaaS that has hit product market fit and, and has that growth 
and just in terms of like the value of an of an asset and all that and and also i just wanted to go back to to what you're saying about like the decision to learn to code or not i agree with you in many cases it 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 may not be the smartest choice or maybe you should just learn like a, a a very light understanding of it so that you can communicate with developers i think there are a few caveats that made my situation a little bit unique from where most people are that I that I come across at least. Number one is I I'm not starting from scratch. I, I had been a front end HTML CSS little PHP little JavaScript work, but like professional level front end stuff for years. Building websites, doing a lot of work with like advanced WordPress stuff, working on major websites for agencies and things like that. So like I I was not completely new to what to to basic coding and, and programming. I've just I just never really learned like a back end stack like Ruby on Rails and working with databases and things like that. Uh, so there was that. So that that gave me a head start. And then the other thing is that I had the time. Like I really have have full time hours to throw at this. If I didn't have that, if I was doing this like nights and weekends, I don't think it would it would be possible to to make as much progress as I did in the in the over the last now like two years, almost two years. You know, I, I don't think I would have been able to to really make a lot of progress with it if I if I couldn't work on it full time every day. Right, you had a lot of time to focus, and it was something that, as you said, you already had a a basis for it. And I had a lot of help too. Like a, a lot of my close friends are software developers, Rails developers, so I had a lot of people that I could um, turn to for support, and they've been super helpful. Totally. That's the thing. You're in the developer community already, even if you're more of a front-end developer slash designer. You know, it's like you live in that world and it's not such a far stretch to be like, okay, I want to go one layer deep and see how it interacts with, you know, with the server-side code. Cool. So that kind of takes us to, uh, it's like spring of 2018. Audience Ops is back, profitable, and you, you know, took another, not another step back, but you were able to, to free up your time and you know, spent most of 2018, as you said, you know, learning Rails. What was the most surprising part of that experience of of taking that six or eight months and digging into server side code and learning to build, you know, really to build your own software top to bottom for the first time? Yeah, I mean, in the early months, it was like I knew that it would be a, a very big effort and it would take me a long time to get decent at it. But it was a little bit frustrating, you know, not like going through tutorials and courses and then still not quite being able to build anything real yet, but then just hacking away at it a little bit more for like another month or two. And then I can build something very simple. And I, over the course of 2018, I, d- I went through a bunch of courses. I worked with a coach, which was very helpful. And then I did some some like throwaway practice project apps. And then by the end, I I, I was able to put together like a simple app called Sunrise KPI. That was like the first real app that I that I built. And I mean, I should mention that like the idea for Process Kit, I had throughout 2018. Like I bought the domain, I spent some money on that domain, and like, and and I was putting like sketched ideas for what Process Kit would be. But I also knew that I wasn't capable of building it yet. I had to like get those skills up, and and it wasn't until like the end of 2018 that I felt confident in actually starting to to build what is now Process Kit. Yeah, and if someone's listening to this and they're thinking about themselves learning to code. You know what? What would be a piece of advice, either a warning or just a hey, do this? Like this is what really worked for me. This is what fast tracked me. Yeah. So like early on, I I definitely wanted to stay away from the newest, trendiest, most complex frameworks, um, especially like the JavaScript frameworks and stuff. 
I'm sure there's plenty of technical benefits to those, but I wanted boring, tried and true, non-trendy stuff. So I, so it came down to a decision between using Ruby on Rails or PHP and Laravel. And I went through a couple of weeks of with PHP Laravel, some tutorials. I could kind of follow along with those, but then I found I, I still couldn't take what I've learned and go build something simple. So I went through like a 101 course on Rails. Like I did a month on PHP and Laravel and then a month on Rails. And I found that at the end of the month on Rails, I was able to take that and build something simple. So I, so I continued to kind of double down on, on Rails from there. So I went through a number of courses on that. So, so tip number one is to stick with something like a, a Ruby on Rails or a PHP on Lar- with Laravel, something that has a huge developer community with tons of resources and, and educational stuff. That, that's a big number one. And then number two is to try and find mentors. And I go to friends like I talked about. I paid a couple of people for, for like paid mentorship for a while. And I've joined some... Uh, like learn to code in, in Rails uh, kind of developer communities. I, I go to that for some help as well. And I frequently talk with friends about code questions. So, oh, and I, and I hit up uh, codementor.io quite a bit when I, when I really get stuck. Sounds cool. So you mentioned process kit, which we haven't really, you know, covered in, in this conversation. You want to tell folks what, what that is? is? Is it the next generation of ops calendar kind of done in the way based on your learnings from, from the first time? Yeah, I mean, at this point, um, the way that it's positioned is that it's it's really a projects tool. It's it's kind of like a project management software, but it's process driven. So if your projects really follow the same script every time, they're very repeatable, and you're doing a lot of the same stuff. Whether you're onboarding customers to a service or to a SaaS or or something like that, and you need your team to follow a certain process that that's really where process kit comes in because it's, it's different from the project management tools where, you know, you might run your tasks and projects in one of those tools, but you have your documentation, your SOPs over in a silo somewhere else. And that's where those, those kinds of operations tend to fall apart as the team just never really follows the SOPs process kit sort of brings those together and then also builds in some automation stuff so you can say like if this then that like if this is this type of project then assign these tasks to these people and calculate these due dates and link up with zapier and and all that kind of fun stuff so very cool and where is that project in terms of uh launching this this is a part of the interview where i ask you questions that i already know the answer to (laughs) what what uh what status is that process get right now yeah i mean it's launched it has customers i've been doing you know the slow launch thing over the past really throughout 19, but I, I think I started onboarding the first customers around June, the very first ones. And today we're, we're in November. And so I've been, you know, sending early access invites pretty regularly since then. And, and it was up on Product Hunt about two weeks ago. And, uh, and now it's out there. So. And is it everything you wanted and more to own a SaaS app? That's, is it just growing up into the right by itself? You make money while you sleep? Or is it, you know, I, I'd imagine, I was going to say, is it back to the same slog as Ops Calendar? But I don't think it is, right? I mean, this time really is different. I get the feeling that there's more potential here. Is that, is that pretty accurate? Well, so first, I heard your interview with Jane Portman this morning, and um, and I completely relate to that, and probably so many other sa- early SaaS founders with the the long, slow SaaS ramp of death. I mean, it, it's real, right? Like it's so it's you know it's very slow, and and you know the revenue is nowhere near replacing like the income that I get from audience ops. But yeah, I mean, it's 
like less than a year in and it and it does have more customers now than ops calendar did there's just way i could clearly see way more it just it resonates with people a lot more the the problem and the solution and the positioning at least with my audience the people that i'm connected to but it's early on i mean it it really just launched a couple of weeks ago so like now that the new website is up i'm starting to kick into gear like like that that shift away from just going to the early access list to actually marketing this thing and getting new traffic and new leads and that sort of stuff. So, Right. I mean, it, like now the real work begins is what I like to say. You know, we're like getting to launch is is like 30% of the journey or something. You know, that's where hopefully folks who are listening, if you we can do the startups for the rest of us drinking game, where like if you get to launch and you don't have some type of launch list that you've been building, then you have a problem. You know, so that's that's like the first first base or the first quarter of the journey and then now you're launched and now the real work begins you know and that's where it's like you don't probably don't have product market fit yet and so now i'm going to spend the next six months figuring that out as i grow very slowly and and then okay so you get to product market fit well now i need to find you know a sustainable source of leads you know one that's relatively scalable and so then you spend the next six months figuring that out you know or six to 12 months and i mean that's why it's the long slow SaaS ramp is it is that these things are in stages and it's it's truly the cinderella stories that don't have these steps in this order it's it's always a grind and even the cinderella stories like I say, there are no Cinderella stories, but even the ones that we look at and say, oh my gosh, that grew so fast. It was a complete grind behind the scenes. And so, you know, this is, this is never easy. I wish you the best of luck with Process Kit because, I mean, it's, you know, it's essentially a second iteration of a SaaS app. You've obviously fought very hard for multiple years to get this out. I mean, this is something you really believe in. You can tell that it's not a product. It's not an opportunistic product, right? It's like, I'm going to ship dog food to people on the internet because I could make money. It's like, you're building this because this is something you need and you believe in. And so, you know, I, I hope that you're able to, uh, you know, to make it work. I think longer term, if for some reason, it, you know, it doesn't work out, would you build another SaaS app again or or would you consider doing a productized service? Well, at this point, I'm I am pretty committed personally to doing software, whether that's Process Kit or another idea or several other ideas. I'm I'm pretty focused primarily on Process Kit right now. I would use the productized service model if it came to that. Well, no, I, I should say that I'm actually still using the service model in many ways. Obviously, there's audience ops that continues to grow. But even in Process Kit, I mean, now we're launching like a, a done with you process service to help you, you and your team, you know, improve and audit your processes, get you set up on Process Kit as a paid service. So that's sort of like a productized service built on the software, um, which I really love that model. But, you know, you asked about like, how how is it like? For me right now, kind of in that slow grind on on process kit, I'll be honest, I mean, I'm really loving it, you know, and and I'm really loving doing the everything from the design to the code and talking to customers every day because being able to talk to customers and then literally like iterate on the feedback that I got on a feature that I could ship by the end of the week. And that's that just feels so empowering. I mean, I know that it won't be forever. But at this point, you know, audience ops is back to growth and profitable and steady state and a really amazing fantastic team that that I have that space to breathe now it's, it's like I'm not worried about having to cut off the development cycles because of cash flow or or things being built in the wrong way or things like that yeah there's definitely a luxury to being able to control that whole pipeline you know the manufacturing pipeline and it's something that like I said I don't write code anymore but when I was getting started all the way through drip everything before that 
I wrote at least some code, even if it was just maintenance, even if it was just tinkering, even if it was just tweaking, because finding a developer to make a three-line code change in PHP or Cold Fusion or Classic ASP or .NET or any of those things, it's a huge amount of work to find someone just to do that. And to if you know the basics of code, to then just learn, I didn't know some of those languages, but I picked up a book or I went on Stack Overflow or I, you know, whatever, and you Google it and you're like, ah, I'm gonna make this change and see if it doesn't break anything. And if it doesn't, it's like, wow, I just saved myself like a week of recruiting someone because just because you, know you know how to do the basics. So there is definitely, it cuts both ways. I mean, I think then you can also get mired in it and then you're not working on the things you should be. And that's where like, as we, started drip i was originally you know derek said hey i want to build it in rails i said cool and originally i was going to learn ruby but eventually i said you know what i actually think i shouldn't because i i will get into the repo and start tweaking things and i should be talking to customers i should be building processes for this business you know i should be doing all the other things that don't involve the code and so there's a point where that makes sense and if obviously if you're building a venture back startup and you're raising money you probably shouldn't be the one digging into the code. Maybe someone on your team is, but there's a balance there. But that's not what you're doing. You know, you're, you're building something that, that you want to build, that you want to exist in the world, and you're willing and able to take it slow. And that, that gives you a luxury. You know, taking it slow. I mean, I'm as impatient as they come with, with things. I, I constantly want to move fast and execute and ship something new every single week. But bigger picture, that's what this this podcast and, and the con and microconf and everything is all about. It's 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 about kind of embracing that slow model of of taking your time and and really get you know making sure that things are are like done right. So I'm all about it. That's right. Ambitious founders who want to build interesting things and build sizable businesses, but are not willing to sacrifice their their lives, their health, their relationships, whatever it is. It's even in your case, it's a lifestyle that you don't want to sacrifice to do it. And that's that's what it's about, right? It's about retaining that control. Hundred percent. So thanks so much for coming on the show, man. If folks want to keep up with you and they like podcasts, they should search for Bootstrapped Web, podcasts you release every week or two with Jordan Gall. Uh, I'm a listener, have been for years. If they want to keep up with you on Twitter, you are Cass Jam. It's C-A-S-J-A-M. And of course, processkit.com is where your SaaS app lives. Any other, any other places folks might want to look out for you? Yeah, I mean, Audience Ops is still kicking. Great, great team over there, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you hit it, you know, that's, that's it. Sounds great. Thanks again, man. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. If you have any questions for Brian or myself after hearing this interview, I'd love it if you would tweet me at Rob Walling or send a question into questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. And I would be glad to have Brian back on the show to answer any questions you have about any of his experiences or productized services or you know anything else that you feel like he could lend, lend some insight into. And if you have an unrelated question for the show, you can leave me a voicemail at 888-801-9690. Or you can always email us questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. You can find us in all the podcasting marketplaces and directories. Just search for startups. And if you're interested in a full transcript or to make a comment on an episode, just hit up startupsfortherestofus.com. This was episode 474. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.